Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, September 29th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with a public service announcement. Um, I have done several games, which Nick has declared my flu game. I've I've done <laughs> one show where uh, I actually did have the flu, maybe one or two. Today, Nick Janusa, take a bow. This is your flu game. How are we feeling? <laughs> Quite literally, this is my flu game. Uh, I feel like absolute trash. Uh, but I am here because this podcast is more important than just some random flu. And if Michael Jordan can play an NBA game, I can certainly host a goddamn podcast. <laughs> That's what people come here for. They uh, They expect us at our best. They expect us at our worst. And this might quite literally be your worst. So we're not going to do as much discussion today. Let's give Nikki a little rest and uh, yeah, let's get right into it. For our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Rebecca Pichotto of CNBC, who writes Biden launches paid program for 20,000 young people to train for green jobs. Last week, President Biden announced a program called the American Climate Corps, which will train young people for jobs in the clean energy, land restoration, and forest management industries, to name a few. The article points out how Biden originally proposed a 30 billion, 300,000 civilian climate corps to do the same. But that was ultimately left out of the Build Back Better Act. The move was an executive action, so it does not require congressional approval. That being said, it was announced just two days after 51 members of Congress signed a letter to President Biden asking him to revive the Civilian Climate Corps. Um, Important thing to note, Nick just said this is an executive action. That means that next president could come in and wipe it clean. So if you like this, if you want the American Climate Corps to stick around and continue to foster this green job movement, you know what to do in November 2024. I also want to give a quick shout out to the Sunrise Movement for helping to make this happen with years of organizing, years of petitioning. They're a youth movement to stop climate change, create jobs, and ultimately get fossil fuels out of American politics. And they really stepped up to help influence the creation of the Climate Corps over the past few years. Yeah, this is one of those things, like you said, it's an executive action. So like, it's one of those things, if you get someone coming in in 2024 on the other side of the aisle, all of this could be, you know, basically um, stricken from the record. So I'm cautiously optimistic about this program. And uh, I I think it's a really awesome way to to educate and to to move us forward. Yeah, agreed. And and I think what's really important about this is this is going to create a lot of jobs and a lot of longer term jobs because whether people want it, and I think most do or not, the clean energy economy is here. It's coming. It's expanding. You know, like it's it's getting more robust with every new industrial solar farm that's that's planned, with every offshore wind farm that's planned, with every yeah. commercial solar farm that's that's planned. 
with battery storage entering the marketplace, electric vehicles getting more and more popular. There are so many things right now that need new technicians, that need new project managers, that need just more people working these jobs. And this is a way for the American public to say, great, I have you know a, a son or daughter who is interested in this economy. They don't want to go to college for whatever reason. You know, some people right. would rather go to trade school or go straight to the workforce. Whatever that is, here is another outlet for someone to say, I want to work in this field. Let me go do the schooling, do the training through the Climate Corps, and let's go get a green job. So I'm really excited about this. I think this is going to have a really profound impact that, you know, even if things don't go the way I would like them to next year, I am, like you, cautiously optimistic that this will stick around. But, you know, the work is not done. This is something that you and I are probably going to be Pretty annoying about next year as the uh, <laughs> the election gets closer and closer. If you like programs like this, uh, you know what to do. If you don't like programs like this, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Like, how, how did you hear about our show? <laughs> Why are you listening? Yeah, DMs are open. <laughs> That's our job, though. This is this is quite literally our job is to yeah. <laughs> to educate those who care. So yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to our next story, and it is from Reuters, where Jake Spring writes. Antarctic winter sea ice hits extreme record low. So the U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center said on Monday of this week that sea ice that packs the ocean around Antarctica has hit record lows, which furthers the scientists' theories that climate change is heating up the North and South Poles faster than the rest of the planet. Now, the reason I say theories is because with any scientific finding, it's considered a theory until it is deemed fact. You need years and years of peer review and research to prove theories as fact, as law. So in this case, it's a theory that they're heating up, but all data points towards the North and South Poles heating much faster than the rest of the world as a result of climate change. This year, the sea ice peaked for the winter on September 10th with its lowest maximum since satellite recording began back in 1979. And this breaks the previous record by roughly 1 million square kilometers with a total of 16.96 square kilometers of sea ice. This adds on to February's summer sea ice reaching a record low, which broke the previous record set just a year ago in 2022. Less ice can be devastating for penguin populations who use the ice to hatch and raise their chicks. It also exacerbates the problems of climate change because ice reflects sunlight back into the atmosphere. Less ice means more sunlight absorbing and heating the ocean. The full analysis of this finding is going to be released next month. So if you're curious, definitely stay tuned and and check out the actual full publication. But yeah, this is, um, I don't want to say surprising because it's really not. But I I think the thing that was jarring for me was it's, it's rare to see extreme record low in a time where you're already expecting record lows. You know, I, I remember back in 2022 when we talked about the summer sea ice level in Antarctica reaching a record low and you just kind of assume that this is an unfortunate trend that's going to keep on going. And in this case, I think it was eye opening me for eye opening for me to read extreme record low because you know, not to keep repeating myself, but like, I'm expecting this. I'm expecting this year to be low. I'm expecting next year to be lower until eventually we, we plateau or things get better because we phased out fossil fuels. But we are so far away from that, that like, I just, 
you know, I, I expect bad news like this year after year after year. But to hear that this year is considered an extreme record low, it, it really made me stop and think for a bit. Yeah, and the thing that was most jarring to me was it breaking the previous record by a million square mm-hmm. kilometers. Like, that is unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, I, this is something that's just not going to get better. Um, you know, like, for at least, like you said, until it either plateaus or we make some major change somewhere. Even if we were to stop all fossil fuels tomorrow, we would still feel the effects of it for, what is it, like 20 or 30 years, I think you said? Uh, depends on the type of gas we're analyzing. Like, yeah, like, right. because okay. methane stays for a less amount of time than carbon dioxide. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll say 30 years to make it easy. <laughs> right, so th- like 30 years. Um, and that just that just kind of puts into perspective how soon we need to stop this stuff. Yeah, 100%. And, and the thing that I also want to point out that, you know, we had mentioned that it's a million square kilometers. You're right, that's a tremendous amount. But that's something that's hard for us to kind of quantify unless we look at it with that other number, that 16.96 square kilometers. All, all of these numbers basically break down to this is 5.89% higher than the previous year in terms of sea, os- sea ice loss. So it's not like it's a million square kilometers and something that's a billion, right? Where it's it's still, yeah, it's a tremendous number, but there's so much of it that we don't have to worry. No, this is almost 6% loss increase this year. So yeah, it, it's scary. It's jarring. It's something where if you care about penguins, obviously you care about this. If you care about sea level rise, obviously you care about this. It's a tough story really all around. So, you know, one that I hate that we have to talk about. It's not how I love to kick off my my Friday morning, but, you know, it's important to discuss. Absolutely. All right, let's get into this week's environmental policy roundup. President Biden told leaders of the Pacific Islands Forum that his administration is committed to helping them meet the challenge that climate change will place on their block beginning with a request for Congress to approve $200 million in new assistance to the region. Many have been critical of rich countries for not doing enough to control climate change, despite being responsible for most of the problem and for profiting from loans provided to vulnerable nations to mitigate the effects on those countries. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced last week that the country would be backtracking on several sustainability goals but maintaining its net zero by 2050 goal. This announcement includes delaying the target to ban new gas and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035, phasing out gas boilers by 2035 instead of 2026, all while no new energy efficiency targets were announced. Experts call the goal to reach net zero by 2050 while announcing these delays wishful thinking. French President Emmanuel Macron announced a new ecological plan to reduce France's greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. His 50-point program also aims to reduce French dependence on fossil fuels by 20% by 2030 before ultimately phasing them out entirely. Macron said that people would also be encouraged to look at alternatives such as heat pumps, promising to triple pump production in the next three years and to train 30,000 new installers. As always, those three stories are in your show notes if you want to read for more detail. We are going to take a quick break, and we got two more for you when we come back.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. to the planet today folks next up monster fracks are getting far bigger and far thirstier by hiroko tabuchi and blackie miliotzi of the new york times so this is a story map from the new york times uncharted waters team and it talks about texas pretty extensively but a lot of this problem can be extrapolated across the u.s basically anywhere that fracking is going on this story will apply So this one specifically is about how fracking is impacting America's water supply, specifically in the aquifers, with new wells consuming millions of gallons of water. In order to drill for oil, these companies are now drilling for water as well. The authors write that nationwide fracking has used up nearly 1.5 trillion gallons of water since 2011, and that is how much tap water the entire state of Texas uses per year. Fracking is a form of extracting oil and gas from bedrock. And in my opinion, the two main problems with fracking are one, it is awful for local water supplies because every time they drill, there's going to be leaks and that's going to get into people's drinking waters. Number two, it causes so much methane to leak into the atmosphere just as a byproduct of extraction. So I know we've talked about this before on the show, but basically any time, uh, fracking occurs. Methane is just going to be leaking out just from the wells, going up into the atmosphere, contributing to fossil fuels, and that methane isn't even getting used. It's not a byproduct of the burning of fossil fuel. It's not giving us that payoff of saying, yeah, it sucks that we're contributing to climate change by emitting more greenhouse gases, but this is how I power my home. In this case, you're just talking about wasted methane. And all of this is going on while I have not even brought up the fact that fracking contributes to earthquakes by impacting the natural geology of an area. And that's all because the process of cracking the bedrock by injecting chemical-laced water into the ground can lead to spills and leaks. And it's now happening at a tremendous scale. This article points out that monster fracks, which are fracking projects producing more than 16.8 million gallons, are becoming the norm in a state like Texas. Since roughly 2020, There have been as much or more monster fracking projects compared to normal projects. But today, almost two-thirds of all fracking wells in Texas are monster fracks. So fracking a single oil or gas well can now use more than 40 million gallons of water. And this comes in a time where groundwater is beginning to run dry in different regions of America. So this is, again, a major problem. The article cites one aquifer in the Eagle Ford, one of the major oil producing regions in Texas, where the aquifer level has fallen up to 58 feet. And they say that fracking could push this down another 26 feet. So you take this problem, you expand it across Texas. Then you remember that this is also happening in Colorado, 
in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, etc. Fracking has always been hotly contested pretty much since the industry began, but it's becoming even more controversial now that this groundwater issue is another major focus of our time. Yeah, and one important quote from the article that we just wanted to read quickly was, the problem is actually twofold. Fracking companies are pulling more water out of the ground, and then after the fracking process, they must treat or dispose of millions of gallons of contaminated water, removing it from the natural water cycle. So oil companies are going to argue that they are using water that isn't suitable for drinking anyway, and that drawing fewer, larger wells reduces the environmental degradation. But this is still a highly environmentally taxing process. So Nick and I can go on for a while about this topic and about this article specifically, but definitely go check it out if you're interested. It's linked in your show notes. We're going to close quickly with something that the article points out that I think highlights the problem with fracking pretty well. The pros of the process itself are heavily outweighed by the cons, even if it's done in a more environmentally conscious way. So the quote from the article says, cleaning up that wastewater, which contains hazardous chemicals, is costly and energy intensive. Even if frackers were able to reuse their treated wastewater for all of their production, the industry estimates it would still generate hundreds of millions of gallons of excess every day. Add this to the methane leaks caused by drilling and the degradation of the water supply, and I think this just really highlights how the fossil fuel economy as a whole makes us money in the short term. It's convenient, it's comfortable, but it really hurts us in the long term. Nick, aside from the fact that you feel terrible right now, what are you thinking about? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm in complete agreement with with almost everything you said. I think this is not worth it in in the long run. Um, you could you could talk all day about how it is short term successful, um, but I think you're you'd be missing the point um, and understating the medical impacts this has on people's lives. Um, there's been very wide study on the subject and we did it. Mm-hmm. We did a whole thing on it. I remember either last year or the year before. Yeah. I think it was last spring sometime. Yeah. We watched that movie that was on it. Yeah. So it's, it just does a number on, on people's water supply. And you brought that up earlier. It, it really is awful for local water supplies and, and for people who live in an area that is, you know, a frack heavy area. Um, your chances of developing X, Y, and Z, you know, disease or, you know, medical issue is so much greater than someone who is, yes. um, you know, living in a non, in an area where there's not that much fracking done or no fracking at all. And it's also always in usually underserved communities, which is, which is super unfortunate too. Yeah. And something that if you're listening right now, fact check me on this because I, I don't remember specifically, but I, I think I'm remembering this correctly. In areas where fracking occurs, childhood cancer rates were much higher than other areas. And I think that a lot has to do with both the methane leaks and the water supply. Like the the drinking water becomes contaminated. So you have basically low-grade poisonous water that you're drinking. The air you're breathing is less healthy. You know, in, in a time where your body is still developing it's really dangerous. And, and it's not just limited to children. It also impacts adults, you know, like respiratory diseases, respiratory illnesses. They don't pick and choose who they impact. It's based on location. 
it's if you are exposed to enough contaminants, to enough pollution, to enough carcinogens, it's going to get you. And this is what we've seen. And that's why I remember in 2016 when we were going through the primary debates uh, for the presidential election and Bernie Sanders wanted to ban all fracking. I remember there were people on, on both sides of the aisle who were like, well, I don't think we should do that because X, Y, and Z. And now right. here we are some eight years later, seven years later rather. And I think the case to ban fracking has only gotten stronger, but I hope this doesn't turn into one of the issues of, of our time that we saw, you know, when you and I were children and Al Gore was saying climate change is the greatest threat that we will face in our lifetime. And people were like, nope, that, that can't be it. You know, we have yeah. much more worrisome things to talk about in this debate stage. No, he, he was right. You know, and if we, if we get out in front of this now, if we limit the problems from fracking now, maybe we're not talking about this again in 10 years saying, God, I wish we listened to, you know, in this case, Bernie, like I brought up or, or really any industry expert that's saying, sure, this is a reliable way to get oil and gas, but it's real bad for people, for the ecosystems, yeah, for the atmosphere. I don't know. It really is. And it's such a good point about Al Gore because I always forget like how much people just wrote him off when he said that, when he was so passionate about climate change. Yeah. Do you remember the so South many. Park episode about it? Uh, no, I don't. South I, I'm Park sure did this whole it. episode about um, man bear pig is the greatest threat to oh, humanity. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So man bear pig is the allegory for <laughs> allegory, uh, is the allegory <laughs> for climate change in that case. And then several years later, South Park did an episode basically being like, Hey, we were wrong. We're sorry. And like they have Al Gore's character come back and he's talked about it. He thinks the episode's hilarious because that's, that's how it was. People treated him like he was, you know, some madman. Exactly. When in reality, like he was right. Yep. He was right right the whole whole time. time. Yep. Smart dude, that Al Gore. All right, let's get into our last quick hit of the week. And it is from the Associated Press where Patrick Whittle writes Maine's puffin colonies recovering in the face of climate change. Some good news to close out your Friday. Atlantic puffins rebounded for the second consecutive year after what was a terrible 2021, according to scientists who monitor the bird off the coast of Maine. Scientists have said that warming waters off New England jeopardized the birds because that reduces the kind of fish that they need to feed their chicks, but the puffins remain strong. This is in part due to the sand lance population remaining high, which is a fish that puffins eat. Gulf of Maine, which has puffin colonies on its islands, is warming faster than most of the world's oceans, and some recent years have been especially warm for the Gulf of Maine, so experts were expecting the puffin population to not rebound the way that it has been after, you know, two years ago looking real rough. Yeah. In 2021, around 25% of puffins were able to fledge chicks. Last year, that number was up to around two-thirds. Even though this year wasn't as successful, they again had a better year than 2021, despite, as the author says, a less than ideal summer of hot, rainy conditions. There are now as many as 3,000 puffins after 50 years of the Audubon Society tending to Maine's puffin colonies. When they first got involved, there were just a few dozen pairs of puffins, according to the article. So this doesn't mean the puffins are safe forever. And here's that, you know, grain of salt that we say to take all wildlife conservation stories with. We haven't successfully saved puffins yet. 
This is a work in progress with climate change still posing a tremendous threat to puffins and many other seabirds in the long term. You know, the warming temperatures from climate change could lead to fatal heat waves, to loss of islands due to sea level rise, to less food supply, all those uh, lists of issues that we talk about all the time on the show. But this is a win right now. We are seeing the puffins doing great. And I want to close the show out with a very funny anecdote. Uh, a couple of years ago, Kaylee and I went to Acadia National Park in October. It's a little anniversary trip. And we went to Puffin Island in Acadia. We're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> let's go see the puffins. It's going to be sick. We get there. There's not a single puffin. We look at the sign. It's like, here's where you could view the puffins. It's like, what is going on? Like, there's none here. And yeah. we look it up. They only go to Acadia in the spring for their mating season. Uh, <laughs> so we were about six months too late. But <laughs> yeah, I would love to go back and, and see some puffins in real life. And this story is a little glimmer of hope that I will get to do that one day. Yeah, for sure. And if you don't know what a puffin is, you got to look one up because they're exceptionally cute, like objectively yeah. exceptionally cute. Um, but yeah, overall, the story is great. And I had no idea that they were even in Maine. So um, I got it. We got to get up there together one point. Do a little, uh, little double date weekend trip. We got to do a live planet today with the puffins episode. The puffins today. The puffins today. <laughs> Mr. Puffins. Puffins. Mr. Popper's puffins. There we go. That's what I was trying. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's end this episode before we start to derail even more. Nick, feel better. That's going to do it for today's episode of TPT. We're actually going to be back on Monday for October's mini sode. But until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and a review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. You can keep up with Nick's stuff at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that's B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go listen to his music. It's the only way that he's going to feel better by Monday's episode. <laughs> our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll catch you right here on Monday. Peace.